Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station is shutting down this month. This week on Next from the New England News Collaborative, we'll take a look at the economic and environmental impacts the plants had on Plymouth, Massachusetts. They estimate that they spend $40,000 a year on pizza. To me, that was a great example of the secondary or tertiary impacts of what a plant like that generates in the community in addition to taxes and good jobs. You know, everything has declined. The fish have gone out further. The vegetation has ceased. Um, You get um, fewer crustaceans. Plus, innovative new lobster traps can help protect an endangered species. We need to get lines out of the water if we are going to protect the North Atlantic right whale. And a new documentary tells the story of an attempt to change Boston's school lunches. Some of us don't even eat the whole day because the food is bad. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Some states and many cities are on the hook for big pension payments to public workers that were negotiated years ago. But when the money hasn't been put aside to pay for those obligations, it can cause big problems down the road. The city of Providence, Rhode Island, is in such a pickle, and not surprisingly, at least a part of the problem can be traced to infamous former mayor Buddy Cianci. So how to find the money to pay for the pension obligations? How about selling the city's water supply? Sophia Rudin, Morning Edition producer for The Public's Radio, took a look at what this would mean in a three-part series. She's here with us now. Sophia, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, John. When we talk about Providence having a $1 billion pension liability, tell us exactly what this means. Yeah, so the city has promised its retirees and its current employees about $1.3 billion in benefit payments. Uh, At the moment, it only has about a quarter of that money set aside. So the city's actuaries, the financial advisors, they've laid out a plan to get that pension system fully funded um, by 2040. And under that schedule, they've got payments, annual required payments that the city has to make And those payments are going up 3.5% a year, um, which is a bit faster rate than the city's budget as a whole. Your series looks at one proposed solution to the issue, and this is an interesting one. It's why we wanted to call you. It's selling water. Tell us exactly what this would mean. Yeah, it's one of a couple options on the table for dealing with that unfunded liability. But it's been in the public conversation quite a bit recently Basically, some city leaders say that what the pension system really needs is a cash influx to to lower those annual payments and put that money towards other uses in the city. They've been eyeing the water supply, which has been valued at about $400 million. So it is one of the city's biggest assets. And in particular, Providence's mayor, Jorge Alorza, has repeatedly uh, pushed to sell the water system either to a private company or to a state-run utility. So he's asked state reps from Providence to introduce bills in the General Assembly here in Rhode Island that would allow the city to sell or lease the water supply. 
those haven't really gone anywhere at the state level. There's not a whole lot of people outside the city's uh, legislative team who have wanted to move those forward in any way. And he met a lot, a lot of resistance from within the city as well. Some people say there are some other ways that the city could try to make money off the system. So it provides water to about 60 percent of the state. And before 1980, the city did charge a higher rate to other towns and and took that profit and put it in its general fund. Some people say, some city councilors and former city councilors say that could be a way for the city to, to make some money off the water system without selling. But the regulatory body has has shot that down a couple times. So if the city wants to sell the water supply, is it actually legal? Is it the city's to sell? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a bit of an open question. The sort of common sense argument is that the city bought the land through its quasi-public agency, the Providence Water Supply Board. It holds the title on the land. It seems like common sense would say Providence owns it. But the state regulator's opinion is that the ratepayers have actually paid for the system. Basically, all the repairs, the staffing, um, the annual tax bill uh, are all covered by payments made by water customers. And so the, the Public Utilities Commission, the regulator says the city isn't putting money into the system. It's actually those water customers who own the system. So that debate could end up in court. It's also it opens up a bigger conversation about who owns a public good like water, something that we all use and need. And and that's really part of a national conversation about the ownership of public resources. And um, actually, my hometown of Baltimore passed a ballot measure last fall, making it illegal to sell the city's water supply. So it is part of a larger national debate happening about about water and water rights and ownership. Complicating this is the fact that the Providence water supply is actually located in the town of Situate, about 15 miles away. That's where Sophia picks up the story. In Providence, it's easy to turn on the tap without thinking about where the water comes from. But for people in Situate, it's hard to forget. I'm the fourth generation um, of my family to be in town. Um, We are very conscious every day of what the reservoir is. That's Alicia Kelly, chairwoman of the Situate Democrats. Her family's connection to Situate extends to before the reservoir was built, in the spot where two branches of the Patuxet River come together. At the time, the area was home to orchards, pastures, and seven mill villages. So my family worked in the mills here um, because the Patuxet River um, ran through Situate, and that's how it got flooded. It was, it was the perfect place to put a reservoir. In the early 20th century, Providence was looking for a place to build a reservoir. The city's water source at the time, the Patuxet River, was polluted by mills upstream. And city leaders wanted a clean and reliable source of water for the growing population. It all falls under the the impetus of the greater good. This obviously being they need drinking water. That's archaeologist Kim Smith. She volunteers with the Situate Preservation Society. They're not even talking about drought. They're talking about they're just not going to have water for all the constituents in Providence. One could argue that that's not Situate's problem. It became Situate's problem in 1915, when the General Assembly gave Providence permission to start buying land in the town to build a reservoir. Construction of the large earthen dams offered new job opportunities on a large-scale engineering and construction project. But almost a thousand jobs were lost on farms and mills displaced by the reservoir. And people were angry about a way of life that was lost. Some of the mill workers themselves 
weren't that upset. They didn't own the land, you know, that it was kind of an impetus for them to be like, okay, go to the next best thing. But for the people who were native of Situate, and this was their homeland for the last several hundred years, it deeply affected them. Some landowners fought back with lawsuits, but they were forced to sell under eminent domain laws. In the end, the Providence Water Supply Board bought 375 homes and relocated family burial grounds. It took an emotional toll on the town, and there are reports of farmers committing suicide after their land was taken. In Situate today, the water board controls more than 40% of the land. Driving through town, you can't help but notice the forested roads are lined with yellow no-trespassing signs, marking the property owned by the Providence Water Supply Board. We also have thousands of acres bound up as buffer that we're not allowed to use even for um, minimal recreation use or trailhead use. So um, for Situate, it's a bit of a problem. Engineers for Providence Water say that forested buffer is their first line of defense for keeping the water clean, and they're buying more as it becomes available. It's an ongoing financial issue for the town. Taxes on Providence Water property make up 20% of the town's revenue. But that percentage has been falling for decades because property values in the rest of the town went up as people built and renovated homes. In the early 2000s, Providence sued Situate over a tax increase. Providence won, and in the settlement deal, Situate was required to pay $5.3 million back to the city and freeze the city's tax rate. The Water Supply Board used that money to buy more than 900 additional acres in the town. Alicia Kelly says that leaves residents like her with a higher tax bill. The city is purchasing land. They're buying up what they can for land. They're not paying as much for taxes, which is significant. These are things that are affecting our schools, our infrastructure. That tax agreement expires at the end of the year, and the town is gearing up to renegotiate with the Providence Water Supply Board. That's the most immediate financial worry for Situate with regard to the water supply, But it's also keeping a close eye on the pension debate. In both cases, Situate stands to lose big, but it doesn't have much of a voice in the debate. We want people to be as proud of our water as we are, um, but it it sometimes can be frustrating that we'll say, oh, we're from Situate, and it's, oh, you live in the sticks. Well, actually, no, we, we host the water you drink. I see my friends in Providence, and they'll say, you're drinking my water. You know that, right? And that question, who actually owns the water itself, is a whole other story. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sophia Rudin. We've been following how the future of an endangered whale species is tied up with the future of the lucrative New England lobster fishery. At the end of April, representatives from over a dozen states along the Atlantic coast met to discuss the future of conservation efforts to help protect the endangered North Atlantic right whale. The recommendations agreed upon by the group include a 50% reduction in trap rope, It's what lobstermen use to pull up their catch, and it's also what's entangling whales, part of the reason for their near extinction. As Maine Public's Fred Bever reports, these changes will have a big effect on the lobster industry, but he did find some people who are looking at possible solutions. So she's going to cut here pretty quick. Inside the cluttered southern Maine workshop of a company called Blue Water Concepts, engineer and tinkerer Ben Burkett is looking to solve a fraught dilemma how to protect endangered right whales from entanglement in lobster trap rope, short of pulling the gear out of the water altogether. His answer is an invention he calls a time-tension line cutter. 
These are still kind of prototypes. He holds a segmented black tube a little longer than his forearm. A rope is strung through, and the contraption is engineered to hold fast during the time it takes a lobsterman to haul up a trap line. But if tension on the rope continues for an extended period, such as when a whale is entangled, an industrial razor blade inside the tube cuts the rope in two. Now the whale, say this is attached to the trap, okay? The whale would be on this end. He pulls this rope off and he's swimming off with a, with a nut free end. There's been a problem, though. Fishermen found that the original tension system was unwieldy, even dangerous, when they spooled it through their power winches. The new version is designed to stand away from the winch. Riquette is testing it out in the Piscataqua River, which divides Maine and New Hampshire. See, well, it's the first time I've run this device, so... He drops two lobster traps overboard, with the tensioner attached to the rope line. When he winches it back up, he easily hand guides it past the wheel. Well, I steered it up over, came up through, and now that's going to go right back down again. Oops. Oops aside, the system does appear to work. It works. It works pretty well. Tim Werner is a scientist at Boston's New England Aquarium. He says there are still some unknowns about Briquette's time tensioner, how it will work under differing temperatures, for instance, and another that he finds more significant. You want to reduce as much as possible the amount of time that the whale is in the rope. It's just not known, Werner says, how long a whale might take to work free of a rope that's no longer anchored to lobster traps or buoys. And when it comes to whale survival, he says, seconds matter. The longer the whale is in the rope, you might have a greater chance of greater injury through cutting action or squeezing off parts of tissue. The time tension line cutter technology, we believe, doesn't act as quickly as, say, whale release rope. Whale release rope. That's the specialty of another New England aquarium scientist, Amy Knowlton. Yeah, so it's, it's six feet long, the sleeve. Sorry, it's a little tied up here, but... Last summer, at the aquarium's outpost in way down east Lubeck, Knowlton demonstrated a new rope innovation to Canadian whale scientist Moira Brown. It's called a rope sleeve, basically a weak link that lobstermen can weave into their trap lines. It's engineered to part at a strength scientists believe right whales can easily break through. Remember those woven finger traps you won at the fair? Imagine a very long one of those. And if your fingers were the right size, you, could, you couldn't pull them apart. <laughs> and you freak out because you're like, I'm never going to get this off my finger. I can just feel a little indentation in the hollow braid, and that's where the next section fits in. Right. Oh, that's great. So instead of presenting lobstermen with the frightening cost of replacing all their heavy trap lines, they could instead slip some of these weaker links into rope stock that they already have. Whale release rope, like the time-tension line cutter, holds promise. Yet for some conservationists, any rope is too much. We need to get lines out of the water if we are going to protect the North Atlantic right whale. Emily Green is a lawyer at the Conservation Law Foundation, one of several groups suing the federal government for better protections of the whales that they say are mandated by the Endangered Species Act. They want the feds to impose seasonal closures on fixed-gear fisheries when whales are likely to be swimming through. We have concerns with weak rope. Calves, for instance, may have problems with entanglement even in weak ropes or breakaway ropes. 
Back on the Piscataqua River, Ben Briquette says more radical measures that groups like CLF are advocating, including closures, are on their way. Unless regulators and fishermen alike adopt some sort of near-term gear changes. Just a week-long closure, he says, could be catastrophic. First off, look at the state. What would they lose in taxes? Okay, now you've got your bait, you've got your truckers, you've got all the infrastructure. They're all laid off. Guys are going to start losing their million-dollar boats. Repo. Then they're going to go on employment. It's, it's huge. One more gear change that's just emerging could be the ultimate techno fix, so-called ropeless or buoyless systems, essentially a remote control setup for finding submerged traps and calling them to the surface. But many fishermen scoff at the idea, and even scientists working on prototypes acknowledge it's years away. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. This week, the lobster fishery off of Cape Cod was shut down by the Division of Marine Fisheries because, and I'll quote here, right whales remain in the waters of Cape Cod Bay feeding at or near the surface. Yeah, their preferred food source, a kind of plankton, is plentiful right now, and that means that there are no traps in the water of the bay until May 14th. We're going to head to those waters next in the program to see how nearly five decades of the Pilgrim nuclear power plant has impacted Cape Cod Bay's ecosystem. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. As we've reported in our project, The Big Switch, nuclear power is still a big part of New England's energy mix. But that's changing as the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts, gets ready to close by the end of this month. Pilgrim has pumped about half a billion gallons of water out of Cape Cod Bay every day for 46 years. The plant uses this water to cool down, and then it releases it back into the bay. When that warmer water is returned to the source, it can threaten marine life and exacerbate the problem of ocean warming. Here's WBUR's Miriam Wasser. It's low tide at Whitehorse Beach. We're about a mile south of the Pilgrim plant on Cape Cod Bay. The beach is a narrow strip of white sand covered in smooth pebbles and seaweed. If you ever needed a tour guide, local resident Christine Bostick is your woman. She's not a trained naturalist, but she's been scuba diving and observing marine life here for 64 years. I really love the ocean. The ocean's never the same twice. Every day is different. Bostick walks down a small dune covered with seagrass. She points out everything from coyote tracks to the only type of seaweed you should use in a clam bake. It's the stuff with the bubbles, rockweed. She says Whitehorse Beach just isn't like what it used to be when she was a kid. You know, everything has declined. The fish have gone out further. The vegetation has ceased. Um, You get um, fewer crustaceans. Things used to get washed up on the beach you know, whether it be starfish, clamshells, whatever. Not so much anymore. You can't find them. She blames climate change for sure, but thinks there's another culprit, her neighbor to the north, the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station. Like all nuclear power plants, Pilgrim needs a constant source of cool water to get rid of excess heat. The plant continuously sucks in water, circulates it through its pipes, and then releases it into the bay warmer than when it came in, about 30 degrees warmer. I know that there were lobstermen that dropped their traps up there. And the local joke was 
You don't have to cook your lobsters here. They come already cooked from the nuclear plant. Local lore aside, many environmentalists say the cooling water system has harmed marine life in Cape Cod Bay, a fragile ecosystem already under stress from climate change and pollution. Andrew Gottlieb is the executive director of the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, a nonprofit environmental group. I think if you look in context, ocean temperatures, and in particular the North Atlantic, are rising at the fastest level of anywhere on the planet. And so you're taking systems that are already under an enormous amount of stress due to global climate change phenomenon, and then you're tacking 30 degrees on top of that, you can't be doing that system any good. Pilgrim releases about 300,000 gallons of warm water into the bay every minute through this discharge channel. It's not radioactive, but you can see steam rising from the bluish-green water on cool days. The Association to Preserve Cape Cod says that when hot water hits the bay, it creates a 15,000-square-foot dead zone, which is surrounded by an even larger area of stunted growth. And Gottlieb thinks that if the plant wasn't there, you'd see the sort of marine diversity Christine Bostick saw as a kid near Whitehorse Beach. Years and years and years of uh, half a billion gallons a day being continually discharged has an effect on the ocean floor. And so it's basically denuded those areas of the life that is somewhat temperature sensitive. Pilgrim's owner, Entergy, says it designed the system to mix the hot discharge with cooler ocean water as efficiently as possible. The plume of hot water extending into the bay varies in size depending on the tide and ocean temperature. But even at its largest, about one-third of a square mile, Entergy and the NRC say its contribution to ocean warming is basically a drop in the bucket. But with no independent scientific studies, Gottlieb isn't so sure. I don't think that the impact on the surrounding environment is given the weight that it should have been given over the years. And I think the notion that the ocean is vast and therefore can have a limitless ability to assume and assimilate all the insults that we choose to impose on it has been proven to be incorrect. And environmentalists say warm water isn't the only problem Pilgrim creates. The machinery that sucks in water is harmful, too. Pine Dubois is executive director of the nonprofit Jones River Watershed Association. Her group monitors protected fish like alewife and blueback herring that travel between the river and Cape Cod Bay. Dubois describes the intake structure as a big yawing mouth with suction. They have screens there to keep the seaweed out and the floating plastic and, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and the larger fish. But small fish, fry, eggs, all that sort of stuff gets through the screens. Fish and plankton that are sucked through the screens die from heat or chlorine. Reports from Entergy show that the cooling system has killed millions of juvenile marine organisms since Pilgrim began producing power in 1972. As for creatures that get trapped on the intake screens, the plant returns them to the ocean through sluiceways like this one. In 2011, environmental consultants for the plant said that on average, 46,000 fish are caught every year in pilgrim screens and returned to the ocean. They also counted thousands of fish that died in a matter of hours or days after being trapped. And when you kill a large segment of a population... It takes time to regenerate, to come back. While Dubois is certain the plant harms local fisheries, not everyone agrees. 
Entergy spokesman Pat O'Brien says in an email that claims about significant ecological damage are, quote, over-exaggerated and not consistent with decades of scientific monitoring. He points to the NRC review, which says the plant hasn't destabilized the bay. Federal regulators also say that any changes in Cape Cod Bay could be related to climate change, which is affecting the whole New England coast. Gottlieb from the Association to Preserve Cape Cod concedes that climate change complicates the story. But he doesn't think it vindicates the plant. The whole warming trend is putting the entire system under stress. Would there be less stress without this heat load from the facility? Yes. Would it be enough to revert back to the norms that people saw 50 years ago? Probably not. The Pilgrim nuclear power plant is shutting down for good in May. It will use less and less water as the plant gradually cools down. But it's unclear when or if the local ecosystem will ever recover. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser. When the Pilgrim nuclear power plant shuts down, it will have endured five decades of protests, emergency closings, and courtroom battles. But it's also meant a lot to the historic place known as America's hometown. WBUR's Bruce Gellerman has the story of Plymouth adjusting to life post-Pilgrim. Beneath the towering granite pavilion in the smallest state park, in the largest town in Massachusetts, is an unassuming gray boulder with outsized historic and economic importance. Waves from the harbor wash over Plymouth Rock. It's inscribed with the year 1620. Mayflower mythology says this is where pilgrims first set foot and established Plymouth Colony. Today, the landmark is a mecca for a million visitors a year. Tourism is a powerful economic engine for Plymouth. It employs 4,000 workers and generates $30 million a year in local taxes. Six miles down the coast from Plymouth Rock is Rocky Point, where you'll find the town's other giant economic engine, It employs 600 workers and pays the highest property taxes in town. But here, tourism is definitely discouraged. This is the protected area we're in. And so you've got double fences with all this razor wire. Back in 2010, David Tarantino was the spokesman for Entergy. The company that owns Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station was constructing a special concrete slab for storing the plant's highly radioactive waste. You've got motion detectors in there. And then we have these bullet-resistant enclosures. Pass guards authorized to use deadly force is the nuclear reactor that generates more than $400 million a year in wholesale electricity. Pilgrim is the second largest private employer in Plymouth. The average pay is over $100,000. That's double the typical wage in town. Nuclear power plants, even a relatively small one like Pilgrim, are unusual in terms of their outsized economic impacts. The generic power plant shutdown is dealing with something very different from what a nuke is. Jonathan Cooper is research director of the Institute for Nuclear Host Communities. Four years ago, as a UMass Amherst grad student, Cooper prepared a socioeconomic report anticipating the closing of Pilgrim. Plymouth is one of just 60 places in the U.S. with a nuclear power plant in town. Cooper learned the software used to analyze typical plant closings wasn't useful. It's assuming far fewer employees. It's assuming a very different model of economic activity. And we found that it was completely insufficient for modeling the impacts for a nuclear power plant shutdown. So we needed to do it ourselves. So you did it? So we did our best. (laughs) And it 
Cooper found the Pilgrim plant generates a quarter of a billion dollars in economic output to the Plymouth region. Lee Hartman snaps open a binder filled with Pilgrim memorabilia. Hartman, director of planning and development for Plymouth, pulls out an invitation to the plant's groundbreaking in 1967. Pilgrim opened the day after its nearly identical sister nuclear plant, Vermont Yankee, started up in the small town of Vernon. Yankee shut down five years ago. Lee Hartman says Plymouth officials met with their Vernon counterparts to learn from their experience. The power plant in Vermont has been an excellent example for the town of Plymouth to look at some of the things that have worked well, some of the things we'd like to have work here that they were able to do, and some of the things that haven't worked well. Entergy, owner of both plants, gave rural Vernon, population 2,200, just 16 months' notice to prepare for shutdown. Plymouth, whose population has grown from 18,000 when the Pilgrim plant started to 62,000 today, got more than three years' advance notice. Joe Lynch is Entergy's manager of government affairs. We've been engaged with the town for quite some time now, understanding what's going to happen when we shut down. I mentioned today that there's going to be kind of a step down of the total number of employees so the town can start making some plans for it. Entergy is helping the 600 Pilgrim nuclear workers who want to stay in the industry relocate out of state and provide retraining for others. Many will retire. Research shows for every Pilgrim employee, one job was created in the Plymouth region. Town planner Lee Hartman. The one quote that was given to me a few years ago from somebody at the plant was that they estimate that they spend $40,000 a year on pizza. To me, that was a great example of the secondary or tertiary impacts of what a plant like that generates in the community in addition to taxes and good jobs. There you go. With a quick flick of the wrist, Boli Matut tosses a pizza dough high overhead. Boli's is the pizza shop closest to the power plant. He says a typical order, as many as 15 pizzas. Pilgrim is a good customer. The best. They call me, they deliver, they pick up. So now that they're going to close the plant, what about their, all those pizzas? I don't know. It's going to be hard for everybody, you know. There's no only for, for us. All the neighborhoods getting hurt, so... Obishan Hardware is right down the road leading to Pilgrim. Tool, right? Yeah, I'm not sure what the tool oh, okay. is. Assistant manager Al Carrero also calls Pilgrim a good customer. They purchase a lot of ice melt for rock salt, six or seven tons a year. So I'm going to be losing that. And they actually have bought grade eight nuts and bolts from us and stuff like that, different things. Fix the reactor? Uh, I don't know what they're fixing. I don't want to ask. <laughs> The Nuclear Regulatory Commission had judged Pilgrim to be one of the least safe nuclear plants in the nation. But two months ago, federal regulators restored the safety status to normal. I think it was time for the plant to close. Melissa Origi is Plymouth Town Manager. Certainly there was concern about the loss of revenue. Back in 1972, when the plant started out, it generated half of Plymouth's property taxes. Today, it's 5%, but that's still three times bigger than the town's next largest corporate taxpayer. Plymouth and Entergy recently negotiated a two-year, $13.5 million deal to ease the transition to the plant's decommissioning. But the company buying the plant to clean it up has not committed to future payments. Well, in terms of paying taxes on the land... As long as that property is owned by, I don't care what the name of the company is, they will be paying taxes to the town of Plymouth. And if we're not able to secure and negotiate a payment in lieu of tax agreement, and if they 
want to file for an abatement that's certainly within their rights, we'll set the money aside and we'll deal with it at the appellate tax court. The buyer of Pilgrim will get the $1 billion decommissioning trust fund that's accumulated over the years and 1,500 acres surrounding the plant. The hilly scrub pine and oak site with a mile of bay coastline is assessed at more than $500 million. We are very concerned whose hands it will end up in. Again, town manager, Melissa Origi. The future of the property is really the elephant in the room at every meeting that we go to. The development of that could widely change the landscape and fabric of this community. Ten miles south of the Pilgrim nuclear plant is Plymouth's emergency op center. This is the state radio. Henry Leip, the director, shows rooms filled with comm gear, computers, maps, and cots. Well, we've had drills here. We have to have a full functional exercise every two years. We just had one in November. Entergy has been paying the town and state nearly $3 million a year to be on the standby, just in case. That funding for the op center stops soon, and it's not clear who pays afterwards. That's a great question. <laughs> uh, we receive an, a grant from Entergy right now. That contract runs out the end of this year. At some point in time, the town will have to have the debate at town meeting to transition the funding for emergency management into the town's operating budget. When Pilgrim shuts down, it will still pose a potential danger. 4,000 spent fuel assemblies will be moved into huge storage casks, but they'll remain intensely radioactive for thousands of years. Town manager Melissa Origi. No matter who the owner is, if there is spent fuel rods sitting here in the town of Plymouth on our land, then whoever that owner is needs to contribute to the town of Plymouth's emergency planning. Ultimately, we are a de facto nuclear spent fuel repository. State Senator Vinnie DeMacito represents Plymouth. He's concerned that the spent fuel casks will remain on the site indefinitely. I believe that there needs to be compensation to a community that has to address the public safety needs of a community that has a nuclear power plant. Senator DeMacito's brother, Ali, is executive director of America's hometown Thanksgiving Parade. Entergy has donated hundreds of thousands of dollars annually to Plymouth area nonprofits, including the town's famous parade. Entergy was always there for us. I mean, there's been years that Entergy's given us $30,000. So that's a major part of our funding source. And, you know, we'll miss it, obviously. We're going to miss them because we knew we could start every year because we knew we kind of had that money. 2021 marks the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving. That's when members of the Wampanoag tribe, who lived here for 10,000 years, shared what they had with the starving pilgrims. Now, as the place we call Plymouth celebrates its rich history, it looks to the future without the nuclear plant that powered so much of its economy. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bruce Gellin. In a few weeks, we'll talk about how the decommissioning process of Pilgrim will work and what we've learned from the shutdowns of other nuclear plants around our region. If you want to be the first to get new episodes of Next or to find any episodes you missed, well, be sure to subscribe for free to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Coming up, the challenges of bringing fresh food to school lunches. It's Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust.
You know those airplane meals that arrive in those pre-frozen packages, heated up in the back of the plane with condensation leaking from the plastic lid? Yeah, it's not too appetizing. But for years, that's what many kids in schools around the country are getting for lunch every day. And for many of them, that means not eating all day. Some of us don't even eat the whole day because the food's bad. Did you eat this? Nope. So what did you really eat for lunch today? This and a cheese stick yeah. is what you had for lunch yeah. and nothing else? Nope. All I had was what? milk. All you had for lunch for today was milk? Yeah. I had carrots and milk. What did you have, Carl? Carrots and milk. Carrots and milk. What did you have? I had the sun butter. You had the sun butter? Yeah. What I had? What did you have for lunch? Four cheese sticks and milk. Four <laughs> cheese sticks and milk and nothing else for lunch today? Yep. What did you have for breakfast? Nothing. No. That's Erica Herman, the principal of the Gardner Pilot Academy in Boston, talking with her students about what they eat for lunch from a new documentary called Eat Up. The documentary follows Jill Shaw, a Boston-based entrepreneur and philanthropist, as she sets out to change the lunches in Boston's public schools, working to bring fresh, nutritious food to students around the city. Fiona Turner directed the documentary, and they both joined us in studio. Turner started with the history of the school lunch program. It was in the 1970s when big food companies started to move into this area and school districts were looking for cheaper ways to to feed kids. And the food companies came up with uh, processed food. And we all know what happened after that. Processed meals became part of our diet and they were allowed through um, legislation to make an appearance in schools. So from the 70s onwards, we've had... um, food management service companies providing food in plastic wraps that's frozen, that sometimes you you have this crazy situation where the apples might be grown in Oregon, they're then flown across the country, they're they're delivered to a processing plant in in New York where they're processed, frozen, and then they're shipped up to Boston. And everybody knows in New England we we grow fantastic apples. So it's it's kind of a ridiculous uh, scenario, but it's it's, uh, very popular because Big processing companies can make food very cheaply and the school districts, if they're not thinking about this and it's not top of their priorities, they're, they're looking at easy options. So that's, that's how we've arrived at where we are today. But the food system, Jill, that Fiona just described, though, isn't just the food system for many schools around the nation. It's essentially our food system in a nutshell. We are all eating foods from far, far away, processed in one place and then shipped to our homes. And it's all done because there are corporations that make money doing this. And it's a lot cheaper for us to feed this way. So as you tried to disrupt the system, what were the things you had to overcome? What were the things you you thought to change? Yeah. So, I mean, we looked at it from an economic standpoint, first and foremost, to see if the budgets would allow for feeding kids differently. And um, I think you're exactly right, right? Like the food business only grows as big as our stomachs grow as consumers. And so we are the receptacle and the producer of all of their profits. And that's fine, right? From a consumer perspective, we we should be able to decide to eat whatever we want and to respond to whatever marketing gets pushed to us. But when you're talking about a USDA subsidy, that is you know, intended to feed and serve the most impoverished, the most needy of our country, profit, it just, you know, and I, like, I've built businesses and I've, and I've worked in the corporate private sector forever. It, it was a little disturbing that, that we're generating profit on the backs of some of our, you know, neediest citizens. And so when we looked at 
how do you shift the the budget in order to spend it in a way where kids get access to better food? One, we realized, you know, in the city of Boston, and this is true across the country, lots of schools don't have kitchens. And so they have warming ovens and they have freezers. And, and that is why we have this packaged food business, right? We, they don't, we don't have any way to cook closely to, to the children. But if you put in these micro kitchens, which we developed alongside of private sector businesses who are serving fast casual meals to tens of thousands of consumers a day, we realize, wow, it's really pretty inexpensive to put in these kitchens. And so the initiative that's been happening in Boston is to outfit all of the schools with kitchens. As soon as we do that, we then can produce you know, meals for kids directly in front of them. And so that changes the kind of food we can buy. We can buy all whole real food. It all comes directly into those kitchens. It's then chopped and sliced and diced and tossed with spices and sauces and cooked right in front of the kids. And we, the other thing we added to the mix, which actually has an, was driven by, by economics, is, is we deconstructed meals. And we know kids like to actually choose. You know, they like to make choices. They don't want things on top of each other sometimes. And so our delivery system lets every kid choose what they want every day, which then also creates interactions with the staff. It creates conversations, community. It, it, it drives confidence in children who then decide what they want. They take it to the table. They eat it because it's been their choice. So there's all of these other ramifications of being able to deliver whole, real, f- delicious food to kids that we didn't really think about until we started to test it in the field. And so those things have been incredible. It's also it's also helped us create three times as many local jobs. And all of this is happening for less than what we used to pay the, for the vended meal program. I, I want to get, though, to some of the challenges that you faced when trying to implement uh, these programs. I want to listen to a clip from the documentary Eat Up. Uh, this is Jenny Hall. She's cafeteria manager for East Boston High, whose cafeteria was, was hub for this pilot project. I've been here 23 years. I never did this. Now we're running around at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We're here cooking turkeys. Aren't they getting paid, though? Nobody's getting paid. Just me and Martha right now. They're not getting nothing extra. They work eight hours. That's it. The union's got to step in, and the union's got to say, okay, everybody's on the same page. And, Jill, what we're hearing there and and what we see in Fiona's documentary is the exasperation of food workers who've never had to do in their jobs all of the things that it takes to prepare a fresh and nutritious locally sourced meal. So so talk about getting through those challenges. So the, the challenges are change management cha- challenges that you come up against anytime you try to change anything where humans are involved, right? Because we were trying to go very, very fast in order to meet timelines and deadlines that, you know, were happening on, around city budget and city planning. And really the best kind of change management happens with, you know, at the right pace and so that, you know, people can shift and really buy into things. And so that clip is a great example of where, you know, a sense of urgency was clashing against just the explanations that were needed and the love and care to kind of move the whole engine in a new direction. If I can just add to that, I think that was what it made for an interesting uh, documentary from my perspective, was seeing all of these changes taking place on the ground. Jill and her team would come at this from from a business perspective, see what needed to be done, and then then instrument the change. And the change actually hits in the cafeteria floor, where suddenly there's a lot of people who are having to adapt and uh, having to take on uh, a new role. And um, that's what was going to make for an interesting film from from my perspective and um, you know it wasn't all good so some of them 
adapted Jenny Hall's actually we see we hear from her in this moment and she's exasperated but actually she rallies she she carries the team but there were other women uh, uh, and other other staff who, who were less able and uh, I think that is probably one of the challenges when you are enterprising a new system is to get everybody on board and recognize that not everybody is going to be able to deal with those changes. So how has this turned out so far since since the documentary, during the filming of the documentary? Do, do you have a sense, Jill, of, of how successful it's been? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been incredibly successful. So that pilot that the film documents was with four schools. The decision was made that December to build 30 more kitchens in schools. So those 30 were built last summer. And then Food Nutrition Services rolled out this new program that we call My Way Cafe to 30 schools. And then um, next year, the mayor just made an announcement a couple of weeks ago that all of Dorchester and all of South Boston will receive My Way Cafe. Jill Shaw is an entrepreneur, a philanthropist who's working to change the lunches served at Boston public schools. Fiona Turner is the director and producer of a documentary about this project. It's called Eat Up. The film is being screened at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts June 5th through June 9th. You can find more details about the film at nextnewengland.org. Fiona and Jill, thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. We found another place that's trying to change the way we think about food, Stonington, Connecticut. This historic eastern Connecticut town has always revolved around the ocean, but now a 250-year-old farm wants to diversify the food economy in more ways than one. It's become a hub to learn about what we eat and how to value the men and women who produce our food. From WSHU, Cassandra Basler reports. Rows of spinach, broccoli, and herbs line a greenhouse at Stoneacre Farms in the seaside community of Stonington. Amy Hussey, try some organic spinach. Delicious. Hussey is the chef at Oyster Club, a farm-to-table restaurant in nearby Mystic. Part of her job is ordering fresh produce here. She says she feels... Very spoiled. Um, It definitely makes cooking at home a lot harder because (laughs) there's so much here to choose from all the time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it just makes you more appreciative and aware of everything that you're buying and what you're surrounded by and what's available. So Hussey says she's more aware of who puts food on the table, too. Less than 7% of restaurants are run by female chefs like herself, but women own about 40% of farms in the state. This prompted a special event at the farm to celebrate the surprising amount of women who work in the local food economy. You don't think about it right off the bat, so it was kind of astonishing when we started putting everything together and thinking about, wow, it really is a lot of females. Stone Anchor's farm has fostered a network of women working in the farm-to-table industry. Jane Miser is co-owner. Miser says she's been inspired by strong women who have played a role in her family business since they built the farm in 1765. My grandmother's force absolutely is, is very much within the walls of this house and this property. And I just remember with her making currant jelly and having the currants boiling on the electric stove in the kitchen and just spending time with her with that. When her grandparents died, the farm sat vacant for eight years. Then she and her husband, who owned several local restaurants, had an idea. A lot of these larger properties are very expensive to maintain. So how can small farms in New England survive on something besides just farming? So they rallied investors. They got special zoning to run businesses on the property. 
Now other farms look to Stone Acres as a model because it makes money hosting weddings, a farm stand, dinners, and events. Like this one, a panel that invited food producers to discuss how they think the industry should change. They're all women who supply meat, fish, and more to local restaurants. But anthropologist Rachel Black from Connecticut College introduces them not as women, simply as experts. Women have always been there. I just want to say that. Women have always been in the fields, in the kitchens, um, in boats, on the ocean, in the sea, uh, in every aspect of food production. We've always been there. One expert is Rachel Slattery from Rhode Island. So I I joke that male-dominated industries are like where I've spent all of my life (laughs) there. Slattery worked on fishing boats for several years before she founded Wild Harmony Farm with her husband. She realized she couldn't afford to eat the kind of grass-fed beef she wanted, so she learned to raise it herself. I also really believe that without education, there's no sense in even really caring about food at all, right? If we're not learning about how it's being grown, who's growing it, how to cook it, how to source it, all of that, how to budget for it. It's just like, we can't make this work. We're all going to end up at McDonald's. The yellow farmhouse at Stone Acres is one place where people can learn about this sort of thing. Jen Rothman is the education director on the farm. She works with kids as young as three years old. Rothman shows them how to pull a carrot out of the ground and chop it for supper. It's not so innovative, except that it's just not done anymore. I mean, people have been cooking together and learning from um, parents and grandparents and community members forever. Rothman believes making and sharing meals together changes our relationship to food. It makes it a little bit more special, and um, I'm, I hope, th- I think the innovative part is using that as really a mechanism to get people to care more deeply about the people who are growing our food and about the soil that it's coming from. Here in Stonington, a small farming community may inspire a new generation to slow down and enjoy a seat at the table. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cassandra Basler in Connecticut. You can be the first to get the new episode of Next each week if you subscribe. Find the new show and get any episodes you missed. Wherever you get your podcasts, just search for Next New England. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And our executive producer is Katie Solarski. Music this week comes from Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Audio Jane, and Chris Ross and the North. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Publix Radio.